hundreds of thousands of times larger and constructed mostly of soil. Welcome to House of Bards, a podcast about role-playing games, I guess. That's what we're about, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. think so, yeah. Uh, that's the first episode, we can get into what we're about in a minute. Uh, my name is Alex, some of you may know me as Cleaver Grumish on Twitter or Tumblr. With me is Beth. That is me. That is her, indeed. Uh, you may know me as Baroness Banff on I think Tumblr and I think Twitter. I think I'm that on Twitter. I think you're both of those things in both of those places. Uh, yeah. Wh- what, are, what are we going to be, be talking about? Um, House of Bards is, is, is a podcast about shared narrative as a mm. format of um, role-playing game focus, which is a very poncy thing to say. But the, the point is, like, you have all your different ways of playing games like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, Call of Cthulhu, Traveller, um, help me out here Beth. Apocalypse World, Shadowrun. Yes, also those things. That other one I can't remember the name of. Many, yes, many. Yes, those are the, the things about which we are talking. So if anybody has come here either looking for a satirical take on successful television show House of Cards or a podcast about William Shakespeare. I am afraid we are neither of those things. Oh, man. Just clones of William Shakespeare all living in the house, same house together with Kevin Spacey. William Shakespeare would probably be really, really into d and I think and he I would, yeah, actually. I can't remember if Kevin Spacey is one of the famous people who definitely is confirmed to play. I'm not sure he is, actually. I know Vin Diesel does. I know Vin Diesel, yeah. Of course Vin Diesel mm. does. So this is the first episode. And we thought that for the first episode, we should run with the theme of in the beginning, of getting started. So what we, we intend to talk about is creating a, uh, a world, uh, creating a, a, a game setting from scratch for a DM. And for players, creating characters who are going to have in-depth narratives in those worlds. And I think that's really the kind of the sort of sort of thing that we're going to go for um, with the, the whole shared narrative aspect. Like, um, there's probably going to be a point where we do treat this as like a sort of generalized RPG talk space, at least for a bit. I mean, I know that at some point when we run out of ideas, we will probably just do the "Here are all of my funny stories about RPGs" episode, and that's fine. But mm. I think yeah. the main focus is going to be on the kind of like D and D playing that. Somebody who's spent a lot of time doing, like, roleplay uh, on uh, Tumblr or via email or, like, message boards type style, like, writing, like, collaborative writing type roleplay. Uh, if somebody like that wants to, to try and make it a bit more mechanical, a bit more like an actual game, and they came with those expectations to D&D or a similar game, I think that's really what we're trying to cater to. Mm. Uh, which is not to say that yeah. that is the only way to play, and it's not even to say that that's the no, only yeah. way that either of us play. Uh, I'm running mm-hmm. two games at the moment, and one of them is very, very much like that. The other one is maybe still a bit lighter than you might expect from like a really hard-on old-school DM, but it's it's a good deal more brutal, and there's a lot more chance of, of characters dying in bullshit ways, really. Mm. Um, but okay, yeah, so we're going to start with... 
where to begin. And so, so for, for a bit of context, um, what we're going to be using as a, a reference point, at least as long as we're talking about D&D, uh, this is not to say that we can't bring up other reference points, but um, I have a game setting that has existed for about a year. I think it's just over a year, like the, I wrote the, the very first scenario, called Dawn Somber. And so most of my, uh, I don't want to say advice, like most of my stories about how I do this kind of thing is going to come from my experiences building that game world. And, you know, I, I've built one world, so some people might say, well, that's a vision experience, you know, you've done it once. And I'm like, well, I want to do this now because I really like Dawn Somber. It fulfills a lot of the things that I want out of a fantasy role-playing setting. And I don't actually envision myself making another one in that same vein. I mean, obviously, if we completely change systems to something that has a, a different focus, so, like, you don't really create worlds for Call of Cthulhu, but um, Traveller, for instance, um, I would probably do a bit of world-building in that. But as far as I can see, there is enough material in Dawn Somber, at least potentially, that I might not need to make another setting until, I don't know, Ever, probably. I think that the whole thing is big enough that even if I move away from like the things that I'm interested in currently that are defining the mm -hmm. bit of the setting that are that is, is in current focus of scenarios, it would have to be something pretty fundamental about the setting that I suddenly started to dislike that would make me just scrap the whole thing completely. Yeah. Um, where was I? Context, right. So on Mondays, I run a D&D game over Skype, uh, that includes Beth and three of our, our other friends. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the, the podcasting magic happening here. Uh, we are not in the same room. We are, in fact, yeah. depending on your definition of what the nations that make up the United Kingdom constitute, not even in the same country. I know, it's, right? It's amazing. it's amazing. I currently live in Belfast in Northern Ireland, whereas Beth... I live in North England, which is exactly as it's for American views is exactly how it's depicted in Game of Thrones. The North, it's yeah, it's that. Like, I mean, honestly, I've got like one of the only computers in the North of England, actually. So we have never met each other in real life. No, never. But that's the great thing about role-playing games is that, especially if you're doing them in this kind of format that doesn't require a huge amount of supplementary crap. Um, it's entirely possible to just do them over a medium like Skype. Mm -hmm. And we've had great success, I think, with, with the way that that's gone. Yeah. So, let's talk about, if you say you're a DM, and you're like, well, I've seen a load of, of game settings for the game of Dungeons & Dragons, or a similar game, but I don't really like any of them. Or, I like them, and I'll play games in them, but I don't really feel ownership over them. Now, if I'm fair, this may possibly be a problem that's quite specific to people like me. Um, mm. If there's anybody listening who plays Magic the Gathering, I am literally the most Johnny person you will ever meet, quite honestly. And that's that's posed a huge problem for me playing that game. And it bleeds over into like when I do role-playing games and stuff like that. I think, this is cool, and I really like it, but until I have control and a way to express my creativity in quite a big way it doesn't feel like it's mine 
And I don't believe I'm honestly like the only person like that. So I think that's that's an accessible thing. But uh, I do wonder maybe how widespread it is. Anyway, if you are indeed that kind of person, then I would recommend what I did. So if we go back about a year, uh, I would say if you if you I think maybe this is specific to if you are starting out DMing as well as creating creating a world, um, which seems scary. But I think like if you're as hard into the whole like um, DMing as creativity thing like me, that's the way to go. Like I think it's a mistake unless you're also unfamiliar with the system to try and do something pre-made as a way to test your ability to GM because it's going to be different. It will 100% be different. But I would recommend if you if you are starting off in that particular situation, just make something like a, a really small, simple scenario set in some kind of setting or location that doesn't really force you to think about or give away a huge amount about the setting itself. So the very, very first Dawn Summer scenario was called The Lonely Caverns. Beth, you have played that scenario, haven't you? Yes. Uh, perhaps you should provide a bit more context about your character in the Monday game. That might come up later. Yeah. I play the bard which is almost self-explanatory really jay is a agender half elf and is in universe a ancestor of Ardskull, who i believe is like an ancient elf who was really important and descendant, descendant thank you that is the word descendant of an ancient but elf that that came up during the game like that's a bit more advanced than what was in the scenario when it was originally run yeah essentially it was some caverns that were very quiet magically so i believe in some cases and then we went down and there was an old god and it was really scary uh yeah it's it's it was not a complicated scenario i wrote it no, it was not i actually wrote it to be a one shot because this was the first time i had ever dm'd like not the game that um, beth is describing that's actually the second time i've run that scenario but the very very first time last year i ran uh, the lonely caverns was the very first time i had ever dm'd and I don't know how important this is going to be, but it bears, uh, bears saying, I think, that Dawn Somber started out as a second edition AD&D setting. Like, that was the system mm. I was using. Like This was last year. This was before... Yeah, I think it was before 5th edition came out. And um, well, I'm not trying to start any um, edition fights, because... They're going to happen anyway. They're going to happen anyway. I would rather they did not happen on whatever commenting medium is available to listeners of the podcast. I really like 5th edition D&D. And, like, I do kind of like it because it's the newest one, and therefore I think it's it's most accessible to people who want to start playing the game but don't really understand how editions work. Yeah. But I also like it because it is very, very... It has a lot of the trappings of modern editions, like uh, 3.5 and 4th edition, mm -hmm. and the number of those trappings it has, if I can say that they are present in both 3.5 and 4th edition, must indeed be quite small. But it has it, it has a modern feel, but it's very similar, I think, to 2nd edition, which was my previous uh, favourite D&D edition. In fact, it might still be. I like 2nd edition. I just also really like 5th edition. So Dawn Sombra is a 2nd edition setting that became a 5th edition setting. So we're in 2nd edition to, to begin with. And... The reason I started with a setting like the Isle of Bells is now I believe in this in the scenario itself I did actually specify where the boat you are on is coming from and where it's going, which meant that there were at least two other places named in this yeah. uh, scenario. But my my point was this is an entirely 
self-contained scenario that doesn't necessarily reveal any unnecessary information about inaccessible locations or outsider concepts. There are exceptions to all of these these rules that I'm saying. There was, um, if we go on to the gods later, then I'll, I'll talk about how that doesn't quite make, make sense. But, yeah. but I was like, okay, everything in this scenario is going to happen on this island. And the island itself, like... I'm sure if I went back over like the uh, scenario itself and the... I think I did at one point write down walking times between particular locations. If you went down with like a standard movement speed, you could actually figure out roughly how big the Isle of Bells is. And it's not big. It is really not big at all. It mm. has one town, which is its capital city, because the Isle of Bells is technically a separate nation from the rest of Dawn Sombra, as I established later. Um, and then one tiny village that sort of acts as like uh, haven for uh, rangers. Mm. Which is where Jay's from. That is where Jay's from. Yes, we, we decided that. The interesting thing about the Isle of Bells is that once it's sanctified in the setting, it becomes, like later when, when people are making characters, and you're like, well, where do you want to come from? Like That is one of the viable options. Yeah. And the Isle of Bells, although it's mostly elvish... People of all stripes live there, so it's not unreasonable to believe that pretty much any player character, with the particular exceptions of Dragonborn because they're a special case, and Tieflings because their major population centers are too far away, could conceivably live there. I, I think that's that's a really good idea. It doesn't have to be an island. Like I thought, island is best because. As long as the boat that brought them refuses to leave, the island has the least potential for players to be difficult and try and wander off into areas of the setting that you haven't decided on yet. Yeah. Um, which was my original intention, because I was playing with a group of people who I knew <laughs> wouldn't like weren't necessarily guaranteed to do that, but it would be on the table. Um, I, I had done it before as part of that group, you know, with another DM, so. So I, I was prepared for that. Um, I don't know if I could have stopped them if they were really set on it. They might have tried to commandeer Just a boat. swim it. <laughs> Maybe swim it. They would have died. Because uh, <laughs> if you actually look at the map that I later drew up for Dawn Sombra, like the distance between the Isle of Bells and any of the land masses in the surrounding bay is not vast, but you would die. Yeah, you, yeah, it, you it's would not, die. It's not really swimmable unless you're like a mer person. So when that was completed... Um, and I think this is kind of where I can justify breaking my own rule. The fact that there were two other named places. There was the city port of Tarn, which was... Like, there was literally um, two lines. The city port of Tarn in the Humano Dwarf Republic of Meslin. That was all the information that I gave about where your boat was going. And the kingdom of Varash, which was all the information that I gave about where your boat was coming from. And I was like, okay, I have two countries here. Like, what do those those um, sentences imply? One of them is a republic, the other one is a kingdom. One of them is presumably not desirable to live in because you're leaving, and the other one is, if not desirable to live in, more desirable than the other. So you have a lot to work with there, but it's still been established. I don't think it's necessary that you have to do that. I think it's entirely, like, if you just want to make your first scenario completely self-contained... And then just go, so what happens next? What happens if you go off in this direction? That's fine. And I did eventually start doing that because, you know, you can't keep, like, dropping hints as to the next place. You kind of have to scatter it about a bit and just drop a lot of names if you're going to and leave it otherwise. So once you've done that, once you've done that, you have hooks that you can run with. 
or not, as the case may be. But but you can expand out into what's outside this space. And this is a very good opportunity, I think, when you're running a campaign for the kind of the groups of people who we're talking about. If you can get this this early on, I, I didn't. Like, this is the bit that does not come into my story. If you can just be like, you guys can go wherever you like, and I will build the world around you. Which is what I have started to do a bit mm. um, with, uh, with you folks. Because you went off in a weird direction that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, I have to put an endpoint on this quest, and that will involve like actually making somewhere for the endpoint to be. But if you can do that, that's a much better way, I think, of actually building the story. Because otherwise you run into the problem where even if you're not railroading the players while they're in a scenario you're still kind of dictating where they can and can't go. And there comes a point where your justification for that is going to be contrived. Like, I was like, okay, um, I have ideas at least about where you can and can't go because the boat service here is restricted and you're, like, in the middle. Like, this is the stopover point. Like, yeah, that's that's what 17 is. So you, you have to go to Tarn unless you're going to stay here, which is not advisable. Hmm. But past that point, it's like, well, I can recommend where they go, but I can't keep, like just saying, well, you're going to go to this place next and this place next. And I think I've had a lot more success with, with the Monday group than the Tuesday one um, in that, that respect. Mm. I think when you when you start to like widen out the, the setting, the thing that you have to think about is what stories, what kinds of stories do I want and not want to be viable in this setting? And I think that's not really like a, a role-playing thing. Mm. I think that's just... It's a personal thing, isn't it? it yeah. Is, it, it's, yeah, it is a personal thing, but it's also just a case in like any kind of rule, like world building type writing. Uh, I know you've done a bit of that. Oh you? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so like some examples, um, we had a bit of trouble with um, Becca's character, yeah. Marion. The characters' names are going to come up in the podcast yep. eventually, so we will. Uh, Marion is a pirate who is very, very against slavery yeah. which is not a bad thing to be against oh, yeah, it's a very good thing to be against. Uh, it's it's just not an incredibly like i don't want to say in dawn somber slavery doesn't happen because it does but there isn't really any political entity that institutionalizes yeah. it like there's no country where either slavery is legal or they turn a blind eye to it or it's really prolific or anything like that that just doesn't happen and the main reason for that is because i didn't want a setting where players could interact heavily with the concept of slavery because it makes me really uncomfortable. Oh yeah, don't get me started. Yeah. I mean, late later on, once I had enough like data on the political, uh, on like the the characterization of the nations themselves and like what was going on between them, I could like swing a bit of of story fluff that basically for stuff like that no nation wants to take slaves because none of them have a suitably downtrodden underclass that they can enslave within their own country and they can't enslave anybody outside their own country because they know it will piss everybody else mm. off and uh, they can you know they they could be needlessly invaded which none of them currently want for a variety of reasons but the main reason is because i don't really want my setting to support stories about slavery mm. And I don't really follow the logic that just because it's like a high fantasy kind of medi-Europe setting, it has to have yeah. some kind of support for at least proto-slavery. Yeah. And there are actually quite a lot of things that that argument is made for that I don't really think... Uh, I think if we ever do an episode on 
technology mm. or possibly religion. This concept actually in Dawn Sober specifically fits into quite a lot of, of categories. Uh, I will talk about um, a lot of things that are considered anachronistic, which is first of all complete BS if you're talking about like a fantasy world. But I get what people mean is it's like what can the verisimilitude support actually quite a lot more than you would expect and also just quite a lot more than you would expect because you do not know history as as well as you think you do yeah yeah there were a lot of things that were in fact invented or thought of a lot earlier than you think they were especially if you're Mm going to like venture outside like western europe for your inspiration yeah or even like in in the case of some things like not even outside western europe you just have to look in a slightly different time period oh yeah where you were originally thinking yeah but anyway um the other trope that i really didn't want was this this one is kind of difficult to explain um i didn't want an old like an ancient forgotten and misunderstood civilization yeah in dawn somewhere there are really really old civilizations like um there's the abandoned um mountain of the dwarf lords and the elves of you know hundreds of thousands of years older than everybody else but like those cultures still exist they're still around and they're still politically relevant Mm -hmm. which means that none of the the secrets stuff like some of the stuff relating to the old magic which is slightly a a special case but like there's no there's no dwemer ruins yeah that kind of thing also the setting contains no drow because drow skied me the hell out Mm mm-hmm um, I don't like. See, every time they come out with a new edition, like Wizards tries to make Drow not a problematic concept. Yeah, they try to make and they keep failing creepy, yeah. because, like, well, it's not even that they're creepy. No, it's like the whole like fair elves are good, dark elves live underground and eat people and worship spider goddesses and are just generally like unbelievably evil. Yeah, like. And I'm like, there's there's only so far you can, like, remove this fantasy concept from the obvious, like... Racial and they keep implications. It. Well, yeah, they keep twisting it to even the point where, like, even though it obviously wasn't intentional... Yeah, yeah. They just keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I don't, I don't like Drow. Yeah. I don't... I also don't like the underdark. That's the other yeah. thing. Um, no, I, I don't like. Like, I like drow, but I don't like the underdark. That that's yeah. A lot of a lot of D and D settings have an underdark, so that was one of the the things. Another thing is, don't be afraid to break with convention and put your foot down. Yeah. And it's as much deciding uh, deciding what you what, what is generally in a setting that you don't want in your setting, as it is deciding what you do. Um, my friend who r- actually runs an uh. The Tuesday game is like alternate weeks. Like I will run my game and then he will run his. And we sort of interlace them that way, which works. Okay. Um, His game is actually set in ancient Greece. Mm. He was like, okay, um, this is ancient Greece, as myth would have it. So you have to be humans. You can be either kind of human, because in 5th edition you can be like a, a human or a, a meta-human or altered human. It's, it's like you, you choose... Um, whether you get plus one to all your stats or you get like an extra feat or something. Yeah. I knew at the time when I made the character to everybody who was just like clutched at their chest <laughs> the idea that I might be playing this game when I when I don't know. I had the book available, but he was just like, Okay, we're just gonna do like mono humans because that makes sense in this in the setting. And I'm like, That's totally cool. Yeah. You know? Let's let's do that. And I think for the way he's presenting the setting, it works really well. My setting obviously has actually every playable character race in the book, mm-hmm. 
Except drow. Except drow. Well, I mean, they're just they're like they're like they're like a different brand of elf. They're like the die. Well, that's the thing. Elf. I was like, you know, why why would I not just like merge non-white elves into elves? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, there, there's there's a reason why that works as well. Like uh, possibly I'll bring it bring it up later on. I recommend leave yourself a lot of space. Uh, I don't know, uh, Beth. Have you seen the um, the Dawn Somber map? I have seen the Dawn Somber map. I have it on my phone. Have you seen the Dawn Somber map with the areas explored in scenarios to date marked on it? Yes, with the little squares around it. Yes. So, so you can confirm that there is like the amount of of the Dawn Somber continent as generated by a tool and edited by myself that has actually that is, is like actually accessible in a written scenario and has been visited by player characters constitutes about a thirtieth yeah. of the continent's size it's itself. It's a very big map, and it is only a bit of it's been explored. Of course, uh, Don Sombra is not guaranteed to be like Pangaea no. either, so there might be other oh, continents yeah. if somehow players over the years manage to like explore every mm. bit of it. Um, so I think if you leave yourself a lot of space, um, then you're not really going to run out of space to have ideas yeah. in. Don't do what I do when world building and just make like elf country, human country, and then be like, fuck, where does Asia go? Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Well, I think like that's that's that kind of thing is like all right to do. No, yeah. Um, but you then have to if, like work if, around if, it, yeah. I think like the, the principle that I want to work to is pretty much anything and this is going to backfire on me spectacularly when somebody trudges up something utterly horrible to do. But pretty much anything is okay to do, so long as you intend to do yeah. it. Uh, I think if you if you want to make like a Planet of the Hats type setting, where you're like, this is where the elves live, yeah. and this is where the dwarves live, yeah. and this is where the humans live, and never the twain shall meet. Yeah. Like you can do that. It's a bit. I think I would recommend if you do that, then maybe your uh, setting is going to be a little bit, uh, a little bit campy, yeah. and a little bit like. Um, it's not going to go into like heavy politics and stuff. Please, I, I, I don't think that's a good idea to do in that particular kind of setting. I think there's a much happier kind of setting that you, you want to run there that just simplifies things down, and that can be enjoyable for a lot of people. Um, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, gonna knock that. I think like the alternative is like you have a bunch of different countries, and each of those countries has a normal like racial distribution, yeah. uh, which is what uh, Pillars of Eternity, the um, recent Baldur's Gate alike, yeah. uh, that came out to critical acclaim. I have played it; it is very good. Uh, did, um, and of course the the downside to that is that a player has to very early on be very invested in and understanding of the setting itself yeah. to actually like that was the problem that I had with Pillars of Eternity I think like if I played the game a bit more I would probably learn like what all the different nations were about and what their what their hat was because it evidently wasn't this particular race live here because yeah. as far as I can tell like the different countries in Pillars of Eternity do actually have like different political outlooks and different like levels of power and they are in different places, they have different climates and stuff like that, but I, I wasn't getting any of that information from the small amount that I that I, I did play, and it, w it was confusing at first. And I mean, I know that, so I'm prepared to like keep playing until I do understand that stuff, but it's worth remembering that that might be a turn-off to new players to be introduced in that way. Yeah. Like, that's maybe a bit too much 
information that's very difficult to process with like the supplementary data that you have on hand. So maybe slow burn that stuff. I think this is a, mm. why it's a good idea to start with like an isolated scenario yeah. where you can like slow drip information about stuff that's going to come up next. And also you don't want everything to come out at the same time because like the game is still kind of about exploration. Yeah. So really all your character really needs to know is where they came from and where they're going. Yeah. Those are probably the only two places they need to know about. Mm. If you're going to play like the more traditional um, kind of game where like the characters just sort of appear and don't appear to have like relevant homelands nearby, uh, then you can even skip where they came from. Yeah. I don't personally like that kind of game all that much, but I play with a number of other people who do, especially the old school gamers, because that was that was the way I think when when Dungeons and Dragons actually got yeah. started. But yeah, I mean like like. It's it's your world, so you have control over what the the what the controls are, what the limits yeah. are. Yeah. If if you love drow and you love slavery, put them in there. <laughs> Maybe even mix them up. Even I don't think up. that drow. I know drow slavery is definitely it a thing in at least one thing, setting. Yeah. Um, so so if you want to have both of the, maybe you want a setting that is entirely underdark. Yeah. Like, nobody knows about anything on the surface. Yeah. I, it's all drow, all the way down. Something else I think you ha- you have to decide is, now that you know what stories are going to be told in the setting, mm. you kind of have to decide on what stories you want to be telling in the background and interweaving with what with the stories that the, the players are telling with you. Um, so there, there needs to be a driving force to the setting itself. Dawn Somber has quite a few. Mm. Um, but probably the most prominent one is... Old magic! I should be clear about this. I am not saying include a Deo Ex Machina MacGuffin that just solves every problem you don't want to deal with. Um, I feel that, like, in terms of bits of the setting that it just sort of, like, patches over, the old magic is used very sparingly. Mm. Oh, yeah. But it's it's still, like, this this source of mystery yeah absolutely yeah and it it drives quite a lot of because the problem i think with running a a setting where you don't have a like lost old uh species Mm. is that you're cutting off one of your avenues for dungeons in the game of dungeons and dragons right there because now you you're kind of restricted to bullshit like a wizard did it oh yeah so it's it's like uh, the thing about the lonely caverns was like this species isn't lost but they have forgotten some stuff yeah or it's not even that they've forgotten it but something that wasn't in the original scenario that i did later include was the concept called the souring which is that uh neolithic elves used to be able to like interact with the old magic, which was an infusion of magic in the setting itself, but also kind of like sentient. And it made gods that were gods in a way that nobody can really understand now. It was kind of like they were eldritch horrors, but also that they were sort of like semi-existent. And they were all this just big blob that had different intelligences at different nodes in itself. So they were like separate things, but they were also... Or, or one thing mm. and they are the thing that disappeared so the souring as a concept is that people with elvish blood used to be the the controller not the controllers but they could wield the old yeah. magic like that was that was their thing and when the old gods disappeared that completely reversed 
and now they are harmed by being in the presence of residual magic. Yeah, like... Which was amazing for Jay, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, Jay was like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Just, like, finding that your eyes are bleeding when you look at a particular thing in the cavern. Yes, it's like, no, 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 not, not this, yeah. And I think ever since then, whenever Jay has interacted with old magic, it's always been like, fuck, no, 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 no. And has been very hesitant, like... Like... And the best, the best thing about that is that that's kind of like um, a workaround. Yeah. But I think that the best thing, and this applies to all writing, once you've worked a bullshit workaround into your setting, that is canon. Yeah. So you can do things with it that don't necessarily have anything to do with the original bullshit workaround. Oh, yeah. So the souring is like a, a great concept, both for signaling when something important is going to happen, if it involves old magic, if there is an elven member of the party, then they're like, eh, yeah. I, don't, I don't like this thing. Yeah. Um, don't be afraid to take the uh, the plastic, the you know, the sticking plasters that you put over your embarrassing mistakes and just legitimize them by giving them a role mm. in the world. And I think that applies to all writing, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, run, run with what you have to do by necessity yeah. and make it seem less silly. Yeah. The other driving force in the setting, I think, is the somber dawn itself. Yeah. It's a very politically tense setting because there's this sense that, like, it's different for everybody. For the elves, it's like if the epilogue of the film didn't end. <laughs> yeah. And you just had to go on to what was next yeah. and try and make that also epic. And it's like, what is even going on? Whereas for everyone else, obviously, they didn't exist until after the somber dawn began. So they're still, like, getting to their feet and dusting themselves off but they're aware of the mythology and they're like well what what are we then if we've only turned up at the beginning of the rest of everything like we weren't here for the main event but there's no sign that this is going to stop so like our history is going to like keep carrying on and i think that is a very good motivator for macro plot absolutely because it puts a lot of tension between the different nations and between the different races and it also means that it's a setting in which things can happen and it doesn't necessarily feel cliched or, or trite. It's like people haven't seen a lot of this stuff before and sometimes, if I've bothered to provide the mythology, you can even see when a certain concept entered the world, like um, dragons. Yes. I, I have some other stuff for DMs here, but like, do you want to talk about um, characters for a bit? Absolutely, yeah. I think when you're first making a character, if it's your first one or your 100th one, you don't necessarily need an amazing backstory because... I think it's, it's less that you need an amazing backstory right from the get-go as you need the tools to make an amazing yeah, backstory. Yeah, I think. And that that's always going to come with the DM and the DM will be able to point you in good directions. What you really need for an, a, character, a character is a personality, which... To be honest, the Dungeons and Dragons Dragons Player Handbook starts you off pretty well with that. Fifth edition is really, really good for yeah, that, yeah. actually. Yeah, it is, yeah. And, you know, I have great fun of just putting random classes together and putting the random backgrounds together. Baker Barbarian, for example, that is a background you can have. You can be a guildmaster and a barbarian. And I think that that's wonderful. You know, you can be very traditional. Other than that, you can be like, you know, scholar wizard works very well. 
you know, you don't necessarily always have to come up with something original and different as long as you have a good personality of a character. I very much like the, the dramatic side of the uh, of the role-playing experience. Like, I am a drama kid. I didn't take it to A-level. I, I, I didn't did take drama to A-level either. No. And, and I've always been incredibly uh, in, incredibly dramatic in that sense. So D&D is a really good outlet for that because D&D is, the way we play it, essentially improv. Oh, yeah, it is, yeah. Like, that's what it is. So that is really all you need in a character. You need something that informs how your character will react to things. Yeah. I think in terms of, of making a character, um, if you're going to make a character who is going to exist in a DM-created world, then the DM has a vision for their world. Yeah. And it's hard to like explain explain this in a way that's not like, you should fuel the DM's ego by going along with... like No, like... You should play the character that you want to play. Absolutely, yeah. But you should work with the DM yeah. to try and find out how will that character fit into this setting. Mm-hmm. And as an advice for the DM, I would say you can be a lot more lenient about this than you think. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. I, I ran into a problem with a player character recently that the player wanted to create essentially Don Quixote, <laughs> but a half Right. <laughs> And of course, you know, the, the problem with Don Quixote is that most of his values come from chivalry, yeah. the concept of shiv- chivalry. And I was like, well, you know, mate, this character doesn't exist. But the, also the thing about Don Quixote is like, he is not sane. Yeah. That That is kind of, of the point of the story. So I'm like, as long as this concept has existed, however briefly, somewhere in the giant 30 complete total scenarios, capacities, size of Dawn Somber, this character conceivably could have heard about it and could have devoted himself to it. And if I say yes to that, then we'll probably have this really fun game. Absolutely, yeah. Where this character gets to bounce off the other characters. And I think that is the, the number one principle. If you're going to go down the road of having a shared narrative that is built by you and your players, mm. it is entirely acceptable for you to BS something to keep the fun of the game Absolutely, alive. Absolutely, yeah. Something that I have been like not mentioning a, a huge, super huge amount, but I'm fairly certain the players know, is that it's kind of difficult for their characters to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I would not recommend that for every single game of D&D no, no. or whatever that, that you yeah. play. I think in the other game, in the Tuesday game, that would probably not really work very well. But what I found is I really like the characters that, that you yeah. and Becca and Jordan and Matt have come up yeah. with. I really like the way that those characters interact with each mm. other and the way that those characters share the experience of exploring the world. Mm. I personally believe that if one of those characters, or if, if any non-total party kill of a like, number of those characters were to die and be replaced with another character, we're essentially rolling the dice on ruining the fun. Absolutely, yeah, no, yeah. And because I, as the DM, this is the thing, like, this is the, the number one principle I want to get down. You, as the DM, are the controller of the setting, but you are also a participant in what is fun about the game. Yeah. So I think if you look at what your game has become and you totally think, okay, the fun of this game is coming from the interplay between the characters, I will 100% support you in BSing things just so that those characters don't die in bullshit Yeah, ways. no, like, a few sessions ago, that dryad absolutely was going to kill me, and I knew that you were like, I do not want this dryad to kill this character. <laughs> the thing about Beth, the character, not not me, not, not you, uh, is actually she was not going to kill you. She was just trying to, like, 
threaten you. Right. I mean, like, she could have fought you, but um, Beth is not particularly, like... No, yeah. J- also, for those listening to the podcast, I promise this character was called Beth before I started playing <laughs> with Beth. <laughs> this is confusing. Yeah. Um, but no, like, one time in particular that I was on the edge of my seat was that time when... Matt had to roll from the Sorcerer's Wild Magic table ten times. <laughs> and every time he was like, I could just cast Fireball, centered on myself, and kill all but one of the player characters instantly. Absolutely, yeah. Including myself. Yeah. Um, it was the Dragonborn. Yeah, in, in, yeah. In he was running, he had, he yeah, he was run chasing off. after the tiefling, wasn't he? Yeah. So, so that would be bad, because he would survive, so the party could carry on, yeah. but all three of you would have had to re-roll characters, and I'm like, well, maybe you'd make people who are just as good? Yeah. But probably not. Yeah. Like the second character is always is is always I think the make or break point. Like if you make a really really good second character, you've hit your groove, Absolutely. and that character is your character. Yeah. If you don't make a really good second character, it's because you thought your first character's death was bullshit and you hadn't got an idea. Yeah. And that's probably going to carry on for a while until you get into the mm. like groove of a character you really like. Yeah. So I think if you're going to try and run like a, a very traditional brutal game then don't get too attached to your players' characters because they're going to be ground a lot. Yeah. But if you're trying to run a shared narrative, it is entirely acceptable for you not to want the player characters to die if you're having fun yeah. with how the game is coming out. And I will completely support you in fudging roles to try and make sure that, that does not happen in anything less than the most epic. Yeah, no. Like, I'm sure when, if, not when, if one of us does die, it will be really poignant, it will be... Absolutely it's heartbreaking. Going to be silent. It would be like let's let's get that down now. The most likely character to die, probably by his own actions, is Silas. Yeah, no. Sil- there is always the chance that that like Balasar is going to say something really inflammatory to an elf and get executed, <laughs> but that's probably not going to happen. I mean, it's going to be Silas. I'm yeah. surprised the guy hasn't blown himself up. Already. I know. I'm. I was. There was that session where I blew down the house. Silas set off his magic. I was saying we are all going to die here. Like, at least three of us, like, at least one of us is going to die. And I think there was another situation with Galliana. And I was like, we're all going to die here. Like, Balthazar might make it out alive. And then there was the moment where Balthazar Galliana is... should have yeah. killed all of them. Yeah. So I, I think that that is the warning I want to give to the, uh, like, open plan kind of, of uh, role-playing. If you put in, like, long-term plot hooks... Be prepared for what's going to happen if the players do not understand the significance of that plot hook and decide to follow it before they're ready to tackle the threat on the other end. <laughs> to be fair, you you know, like, you gave us fair warning, a druid came down, warned us, like, no, do not go there. And then, then we all went, we're still going there, right? And Marion was like, yeah, we're still going there. And we went there. I feel like that you just allowed, like, Marion is actually the captain. You just decided that Becca was going to make that decision for all yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. Which is a fair way to play. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, she's, kind of she's our Commander Shepard, so of course she makes all the decisions. Well, uh, evidently. Um, but yeah, I think you should be prepared for that. Obviously, if you're going to run a, a meat grindy uh, game, then probably one warning will be sufficient, because yeah. then, hey, you warned them. Yeah. If you don't want these characters to die, then possibly think before they get there about what you can do to make sure that like they don't all die, but also this threat doesn't just get completely anticlimactic. Absolutely, yeah. Defeated, yeah. whatever. As it is, I don't think I handled it the best way. I would probably be a bit more prepared if, if, uh, if that happened again, because I'd then know that it, it can actually happen. Yes. <laughs> I think, yeah. But um, getting... 
I think back onto characters and their backstory and in playing with that with the DM and teamwork. I think the smartest thing I ever did when making Jay was I gave Jay parents who were people who existed still and weren't dead. But you gave Jay parents who were very loosely defined and you gave me license to yeah. like actually have a say in who they were. You, you had some like thing you, yeah. you were sure that uh, I think possibly we should like go into a primer on who's who Jay's parents are if we're going to use Jay as an example. Absolutely, yeah. So Jay is a half elf. Jay right? is a half elf. Jay has an elvish father and a human mother. Yeah. Jay's dad is called Perrin, mm-hmm. and he is a ranger on the Isle of Bells. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Perrin, Beth. Perrin is, um, I guess he's kind of a youngish elf, if that makes sense. He's kind of, you know, like youngish in terms of, you know, elf terms. And he had this kid with this pirate, Wanda. Wanda, I mean, she's basically she has an elf boy fetish, right? That was... Like, that that was what, how you pitched it to yeah. me. That like Wanda is essentially the um, he has a girl in every port trope, but reversed. Yeah, but reversed with like she, she'll come back nine months later and just be like, "This is for you. <laughs> this is for you. This and just, is a like, baby." Just like this elf boy just holding a baby. <laughs> <laughs> like what? What is this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. And that is that is what parents. I mean, unfortunately. That's parents' situation. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? Perrin is this man who has been given this child after, you know, one night of fun. And as I think later on, we established, um, he was also painted like one of, um, the French girls and has a big decal, like a big Isn't he like on, on the side, on the of, the side of Wanda's ship? Yeah. Because Wanda is a, Wanda is a pirate queen. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, that's her deal. Yeah. Um, and I think, didn't we come down to like, if you imagine Isabella from Dragon Age, only older? Oh, yeah. Um, I think there were certain real-life pirates as well who inspired her a bit later on. Yeah, I, I think um, Grace O'Malley, yeah. whose Irish name I would use, but despite the fact that I am half Irish, no, I can't actually pronounce it in a way that wouldn't be offensive. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I, I'm trying. She comes up quite a lot in my life, surprisingly, and I, every time she does, I try and get closer and closer to the pronunciation that the speaker uses. I'm still not confident enough to try yet because I know there might be Irish people who are like you no yeah. don't do that <laughs> but that's that's Wanda and I think a lot of it did sort of come from Wanda so like this is somebody who has a lot of half siblings and they all tend to be half elves so that's yeah yeah because like we, we all we all love Wanda but like I'm thinking an actual person like Wanda would probably not be the best no she isn't I, I think this is something that as Jez went on as a character we see that Jez does have issues with like parent- parental abandonment and stuff oh yeah that was definitely um that, that's come up a, a number of yeah. times one of the, the things that I like about Jay's story is that it's defined enough that it affects Jay yeah. but you had enough of it open that you would just let me add uh, things yeah. so for instance I think I was the one who came up with the idea that because Perrin is an elf yeah. he doesn't want to look younger than his kid yeah even though that is a distinct possibility, yeah. at least for like as long as he can get away with it. So he, he grew this ridiculous dad stash. Yeah. If you look up an image of the dad from Twilight and imagine him like blonde and with pointy ears, yeah. that is what I see when I think of Perrin. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think originally Perrin started off ginger, but I decided actually that Wanda should be the ginger parent and actually Perrin is blonde. That is, that's what happened basically. But yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 and then, then you have... Um, 
Wanda. And the thing about Wanda is that like I have made I, I made Perrin like appear on the Isle of Bells yeah. where he should be. Because I was like, okay, I've been given this character. I think it would be really cool if Perrin were to turn up and just like IDM Perrin talking to Jay, because then we'll we'll get we'll get some quality role playing yes. going on. Um where like obviously this is a character who Beth knows of but has never met. But Jay obviously does know because it's Jay's yeah. dad. Um, and I'm like, okay, all I have to run with is this character is Jay's dad, yeah. and the few things that I know about Perrin himself, or that are likely by his relationship with Wanda, and therefore his relationship with Jay. And um, we did have a conversation about this before. Yeah. So I thought that was that was really good. Uh, I haven't done the same thing with Wanda for those who are wondering, and that is because we have built up Wanda so much in terms of like the periphery around Jay that I am scared to introduce Wanda just in case what comes out of my DMing does not live up to the myth. I know, yeah, like the it's... myth, the woman. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I do like that. I'm getting that from every single character. Jay is the strongest, I think, because there's so much of Jay's oh, periphery yeah. that is just immediately accessible. Jay is from the Isle of Bells, which is one of the first places that you go and probably one of the most fleshed out places. I mean, Silas is from Varash, which is literally yeah. the first place you go, but you guys had to leave there fairly quickly, and he doesn't have a huge amount of, like, family or anything, so it's, it's, yeah. that's kind of different. And, like, obviously, yeah. there's not going to be a huge amount revealed about um, about Balasar yeah. until we get to Shearscale Pass, because that's where all the dragonborn in the world live, literally. Don't be afraid, by the way, to just completely ignore what the book says about everything. Oh, yeah. I have completely ignored what the book says about half orcs, dragonborn, uh, drow in the they exist category, <laughs> um, but also like my elves are also almost completely different. Oh yeah, um, I mean, from the elves yeah. are like keyed off the Roman Empire, but they're also atheists. I feel that could be a podcast in itself. Oh yeah. Don't be afraid to like take what you know, but remix it. Like that is that is completely okay to do, and it probably makes for like a very accessible setting because it's stuff that people can relate to, but it's also different, and they can explore it. Mm. So that's really good. But um, obviously, like Tieflings and Dragonborn appeared when the setting switched over to fifth edition. Yeah. So they have small parts currently. Yeah. And that's fine. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was do not be afraid of retconning because yeah. it's going to happen. Th- this might be slightly different if you like have an established setting, if you've just not followed any of the instructions that I have given to you up until this point in the podcast. If you have like an established setting like um, uh, Beth's Fantasy setting mm. and you're just like, okay, I want to convert that for D&D yeah. and you've done that. All right, maybe maybe then retconning is a, a bigger bigger deal for you especially if you're still using the setting for other kinds of fiction yeah. but in terms of D&D um, Tieflings were a retcon Dragonborn were a retcon the Souring was a retcon and a pretty big retcon coming up is that I have said up until this point that the Elven Empire is like the world's superpower like as in it's a, the most powerful country in the whole of Dawnsomber you look at the Elven Empire on the map that is quite clearly not the case mm. It's like, even if it is, pound for pound, the most powerful country in the whole of Dawnsumber, that just means there aren't any powerful countries in Dawnsumber. <laughs> because, like, the amount of, of, of actual land that it covers is pittingly small. And yeah. if you think about, like, the technology available for communication, it's unlikely that people living in the north of Dawnsumber will ever have heard of the Elven Empire. Oh, yeah. 
It's it's not going to happen. Oh yeah. So one day we're okay. going to walk over the mountains and it's just going to be the giant gnome city of <laughs> the giant gnome city. <laughs> The gnomes, it, they're the real like, suit, they're the real masters behind in That's Dawson okay. Run. That is completely okay. That is going to happen. You'll just be like, okay, I fucked I fucked up once. You guys found a ship with cannon on it from a country that doesn't know how to make gunpowder. And there's two things you can do. You can either make that a point of intrigue and write a quest around it that will explain why that's a one off event, or you can say, Okay, I made a mistake. I'm retconning that. Mm-hmm. And just the next point where it'll come up, it's different. Yeah. If you're called out on it, explain, look, I made a mistake. The setting isn't going to work for this reason because of that thing, so I removed yeah. it. Nobody, if they know that you are making this setting up as you go along, nobody is going to be mad. No, like, yeah. That, that happens. It's not a problem. Yeah. The DMs, the thing to remember is that the players are making it up as they go along as well. Everyone. That is, that is very true. And the players always do that. Yeah. Like, you have the luxury of sometimes running a pre-planned adventure where you don't do that. Yeah. Like, the, the players are literally always reacting as best they can yeah. to, to that kind of thing. So, obviously, uh, that goes for players as well. Don't be afraid. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, like, retconning an aspect of your character is maybe a little more serious than retconning yeah. an aspect of the setting. But that said... Um, I mean, it's not really a retcon if it's your character. It's more like a weird non-sequitur. Like, the thing about the, yeah, the thing about characters though is that characters are a lot more malleable. Oh yeah. Because it, you can have a character not do a thing anymore. Yeah. Because that character grows as a character yeah. and grows out of it. That is a little more difficult to do yeah. with like technology or political sensibilities in yeah. a politically stagnant culture. Like yeah. the, the, those those are a little hard to move. And also this applies to like the the personality aspects in fifth edition. If you feel that those are restricting you, um, yeah. or that as in my case, in a game, that those are sufficiently contradictory that it's difficult to actually, like, adhere to all of them and actually roleplay. Like, feel free to either, like, make them very low-key, as in there's more suggestions, Mm. or drop them entirely. I think your DM would probably understand if you come to them and go, this is the problem I'm having with these things, so I'm not taking back any of the actions that I did based on them previously, but I just want to drop them as principles. Yeah, like, I think Jer obviously developed beyond um, the background things for the entertainer on their sheet. And they still very much have their bond with a precious instrument or object, but I think has grown beyond um, very, you know, who wants to hear a song, which was their basic, like, main personality quirk. And now their personality quirk is, like, I'm the bard, which... (laughs) I don't quite know how to explain that, but, you know, and their flaw as well has changed. Their flaw is, you know, maybe a bit prone to abandonment and a bit like, what do you know? You know, very, you know, and isn't really gobby and loudmouth anymore. Although Jay's still those things. Yeah, and I think um, that's probably happened with uh, Silas as well. I mean, like, for confirmation on that, we should maybe talk to Matt, see if he uh, possibly wants to be a guest at some point. Absolutely, yeah. But I, I've seen he started off, I think, as kind of um, very ambitious mm. based on the bad situation that he was in. Yeah. Like he, he started off like, I'm going to prove that I'm more than the, the the mistakes that I make because I've made this this mistake that caused me to, to go in, into prison. And then like suddenly you get, you get to Tarn. Well, not even suddenly, like progressively you get into Tarn and suddenly his entire like deal is uh, come along everybody it's dadaist poor decision time <laughs> which is <laughs> was incredibly that, was fun was that really how silas started out 
Well, I'm in, I'm in the way that Matt explained the character that. to me, the way Matt explained the character to me was like Silas starts out as like he's in prison because. Rewind a bit. The very very first chronological, because the the thing is, um, the, uh, the Lonely Caverns is a level three adventure, yeah. which meant that I had always presumed there's one that comes before that that yeah. I just haven't written. Yeah. And that will be the level one one that goes up to level three, and of course it will be set in Varash because that's where the characters are coming from. Yeah. So I wrote the Prison of Pit Splinter yeah. for a 24-hour event at my local game club. And, and it, it's great as well. That situation is great for developing a character because we knew ahead of time. Okay, we've started off in prison. So yeah, but you also knew think, this is I a corrupt country. <laughs> like the best thing about it is this is a really corrupt country controlled by mafia. Yeah. So you do not necessarily have to have been a bad person no, to go to prison. No. So you can be any kind of person to get into the prison of Pittsplinter. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a good blank slate. And Bethesda do this all the time, and, and people have called them out on it. It's, it's like a tradition in the Elder Scrolls now, isn't it? That yeah. you're always in prison at the beginning. Yeah. And that's because it's like as soon as you get out. I mean, I know this is kind of like metatextual and symbolic, but it, it's kind of like here is a brand new start, and all you had in there is the fundamentals of yourself as a person. Yeah. So everything else that happens. From here is, is a clean slate. Mm. And I know that Silas's was, he'd kill, he'd accidentally killed his lord because he was a jester. Yeah. And he, it wasn't necessarily that he wanted to atone for that because he didn't like the lord, but it was yeah. like he, he wanted to show that he was more than the value of his mistakes and that he yeah. could do good things. Yeah. And and now, I mean, he possibly still does believe that. <laughs> Um, but we, just when, also, yeah, we need Matt on this podcast. Yeah, but. When it, I think it, both of us are going to fail at describing Silas properly without Matt. On the yeah, yeah. It's it's he's he's Silas is amazing. Like um, it, it's difficult for me to like on a on like the podcast say which which of of you guys' characters is my favorite because they all. We all how? bring different strengths to the table. They tables. do all bring different strengths to the tables. I like how you've all rallied in lead, like around Marion for leadership. I like how much Jay interacts with the setting itself. Yeah. I like how Balasar started off as as a very blank slate, but has like slowly grown into his own Absolutely, and has yeah. like his own prejudices and his own histories, mm-hmm. uh, which will probably become very relevant very soon. Yeah. And I like how just completely fucking batshit Silas is. <laughs> So much so, in fact, that he has like taken a level in Paladin, in Paladin of the uh, Goddess of Chaos. Absolutely. Having yeah. encountered her in in, in the in third third scenario. Yeah. Yeah, ca- characters can grow and change a, a lot more than settings. Settings yeah. can also grow and change, oh, but yeah. it tends to take longer. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got to like have the the shift. Because this is the thing. Like I've been trying to keep track of time in the uh, in the campaign. And you guys started off in like the height of summer, and it's getting to be winter now. Mm. Like we've not even gone through half a year yet. Yeah. So that is really not a huge amount of time for something fundamental to change about a country. So if you need it changed now, it is entirely okay to just say, "Look, I fucked up." Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. If I allow it to propagate, it's going to mess up the setting. I made a mistake. Mm. That is completely okay. Yeah. But yeah. When it comes to characters, very much like with Silas, the more you play a character, the better you get to know them, and the better you will play them, and the decisions that they make will be, you know, very much their own. And eventually yeah. the character becomes a part of you. 
I think in terms of making characters, it's going to go best if, if, if the DM is coming up with a setting and you are coming up with a character, then you're essentially making a contract to write a story together. Yeah. And don't be prepared to dig your heels in when you're talking to a DM and say, this is the kind of character that I want to make. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously me saying that as a DM, I'm like asking people to make trouble for me, but like, it's got to be fun for you as well. Yeah. And if that's the character that you want to make, then we should try and find a way to make that work. Like maybe both of us are going to have to make compromises if the character really, really doesn't fit into the setting. Absolutely. But like, yeah. we can do it. It's, it's going yeah. to happen. And DMs, if you want to have a fun experience with a group of players who are going to be, well, in the case of our group set up, like four-fifths of a collective story writing team mm. it is within your best interest to allow them to make the character kind of character that they want to yeah. make and to be interested in their reasons for making that character mm. and that's why you should really like work with them to try and find a way for that character to fit into the setting mm. you have and sometimes that is difficult but yeah. i've seen I, i've actually seen other dms who are completely willing to do that because either they think the character concept would be cool or they know enough about that player to think the best fun is going to come out of this game if, however much we have to transform it to make it work, you are allowed to play the kind of character that you are suggesting you be allowed to play. Mm. Like, I know you well enough to know that you play that kind of character really well. Yeah. And this is the thing. Like, if if you take anything away from this particular episode of the podcast, what I, I want to make clear is you as the DM and you as the player are both participants in this sort of group venture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. I, there's a lot of like old school paraphernalia for like DMs that like plays on the idea of the, the DM being the the mystic controller of of all the power and like who has all the, all the control and you know there's, there's I know that Gary Gygax at least wrote like some screed about how um, it is within the DM's best interest to ensure that players never read the DMG, and if this is unavoidable, should never demonstrate that they have read the DMG. Mm. And if you actually look at that quote in context, it makes sense in what he's talking about. But I'm like, I don't like that relationship very much in terms of, like, I I think that kind of thing works much better for, like, uh, meat grinder type, um, very old school type, type games. I think... In a, uh, I don't want to say modern because that implies that it outmodes the other kind of game, but in a in the kind of game that we like that yeah. we've made this podcast <clears throat> for, you are all playing characters. It's just that for one of you, the character that you're playing is hundreds of thousands of times larger and constructed mostly of soil, yeah. and 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 also has a, a number of 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 other of other characters standing on top of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not. Yeah, it's like you're all making the story together. That is the relationship that you are having with your players. The players and the relationship between the DM, it's very much a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it's like you are controlling monsters that could kill these players' characters, but that does not mean that you are Their enemy. the enemy of the players. Mm. You are constructing the narrative the same, like just as much as the, as the players are. Yeah, you, you... And I think in this case that that, that is why I, I said that that I don't think it's it's wrong yeah. for a DM to identify where the fun is coming from in a game and, and keep that fun going. Yeah, do what they can to protect that fun, even if that means pulling some BS to make sure player characters don't die yeah. in a anticlimactic way. Yeah, um... that, that that is cool. We we are very open to like. 
perhaps what might some might call airy fairy forms of role play here. Yeah. That, that is that is what the House of Bards is about. Yeah. If if that's like that's our first episode, I think if if, if we want to end on anything for our, our first episode, that is the mission statement of the House of Bards. Yeah. And if you're prepared to come along for the ride with us on the airy fairy train of shared narrative role playing, where DM can pull a whole load of BS to make sure that the party continues, then I think you're just you're gonna fit in just fine here. It's gonna work. Yeah. House of Bards theme music is by Kevin MacLeod. The background art on the video version is by David Ravoy. Episodes of the podcast may be available in many places, but for guaranteed updates, subscribe to House of Bards, that's all one word, on YouTube. But probably the most prominent one is... Revolutions? God damn it, Beth. <laughs> See, we'll edit that, and it, it'll it, look like it, I got that. No, no, it, it's ruined forever now. Okay. I'm just gonna like cold drop this bit into the podcast so everybody can hear about your failure. <laughs> <laughs>